Hey. Um, yeah, so here we are in this new configuration. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming. And thanks for your flexibility and your uh, generosity. And um, as we sort of like slide into some ways of experimenting how we gather and where we gather and how we're going to figure it out. So um, I'm encouraged uh, to see so many of you here and um, uh, grateful. So uh, we're in the middle of a series that I'm calling uh, Spirituality for the 21st Century. And um, by the end, you'll all be super spiritual and, and, and away you go. So um, I thought that we couldn't really do, um, we couldn't really have a conversation about spirituality for the 21st century if we didn't talk about prayer, because there's not a culture or spirituality or practice or religion that is not in some way in dialogue with that word, even if they define it in different ways or come to understand it in different ways. And, and and I, so I think it's important to wrestle with. What do we mean? What do we mean by prayer? What is prayer? What do we think about it now? What if you don't believe in like a, um, a man in the sky or some other, you know, like a more theistic, um, have a more theistic orientation toward the divine? Does that mean prayer just goes out the window? Um, and if not, what are, what are ways that we can, can imagine it now? And, and not just like out of the blue, because one of the things that I feel is an important part of the place that I stand in the world is, is something like a bridge between the ancient world and the contemporary world. I just can't help it. It's like I like to look in both directions, <laughs> the past and the future, sort of simultaneously, at least I feel. And, and, I, and we're like in a, in a season or a, a time period in the 21st century where a lot of sorting is going on. I don't know if, I don't know if you've ever read the, the Psyche and Eros myth, um, and Psyche is given certain tasks in the underworld and by Aphrodite that are impossible. Well, one of the first tasks is by morning she has to sort all these seeds and, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff and the seeds that are helpful and the seeds that are not. And, and it's completely impossible unless she has some, like, help. And so you're enough, these little creatures, I think they're mice, like the Cinderella story is a version of Psyche and Eros anyway, but that come and help her do you know, perform these impossible feats. I'm mentioning that story because we're in a, a season of sorting. Like, just think about it culturally. What should stay? What should go? <laughs> what's still true? What's not true? Um, the things that we're listening to from mass media culture um, funded by corporations, what's worth listening to and what's not, a time of sorting. And same with spirituality, same with religion, same with church, same, same with various religions. Like uh, the winnowing fan is at work. And, and so that's a little bit what, I'm, what I'd like to do today. I want to talk about prayer in, li in light of that image, a sorting of seeds. Um, and, but also, I don't really want to talk about prayer <laughs> because it makes me uncomfortable. I've always been uncomfortable with it. If you if in a public setting someone asks me to pray, I have like an existential freakout. I'm like, ah. I, I don't. I, and I've always been. I've always been that way. So my relationship with prayer has been uncomfortable to say the least. Even when I was a little kid. So I grew up in a pretty Christian fundamentalist environment, and um, I don't say this in any derogatory way, but the kinds of people I grew up around took prayer very seriously having a prayer life, praying genuinely and honestly. 
was a very important part of the world that I grew up in. And, but there was also a, a belief that if you had enough faith, you know, God could answer prayers. And when I was a very little kid, I'd sit there and pray that God would, in church, turn the lights off for a second. And it didn't have to be long. I'm serious. It didn't have to be long. But, and, I, and, and this was genuine. It wasn't like um, I was not yet cynical. <laughs> I just <laughs> prayed. And, and, and then, it, you know, it didn't happen. And I would try again, and maybe I didn't have enough faith and things like this. And then sometimes I would wonder, maybe it happened, but when I blinked, that's when it happened. And so I, wasn't, I couldn't be sure. And, and so this kind of troubled me. And, and, and I started to, you know, form my own questions about, well, what is this thing? And, and the, the image of God is like a vending machine where you plug in the right change and of, of the right, you know, coinage or whatever, and then out comes an answer that started to be, feel problematic because it doesn't take very long for you to realize, hey, that doesn't always happen. Or what about so-and-so? They seem like very genuine and they prayed for some healing and it didn't happen. You know, so what is this? And is, you know, did I just have the wrong change and, or I didn't have enough belief and things like that? So the vending machine God sort of started to fade for me. And, and then we were given other instructions. So um, I can't remember, there was some acronym, but I, I remember the elements of then how you should pray because, all right, yeah, maybe God's not a vending machine. You don't just go up and ask for whatever you want. You have to go through these steps. So first you confess all your sins. Then you, um, what is it? You confess. Then you praise God. Or first you confess. Then you thank God for forgiving your sins. Then you praise God. And then at the very end, you can throw in some requests. <laughs> that was like the formula. That was the formula. And, you know, in some ways, you know, I think... Um, that's a, that's a contribution to a slightly more nuanced view of the divine or God or the mystery than just plugging in the right coins. You know, it's like, all right, maybe this is a relationship, and um, maybe there are other things that are part of prayer life other than just asking for stuff. So um, I'm just giving you a little drive-through history of my own relationship with prayer, which I, I, I feel uncomfortable doing anyway, but I'm already, I'm already in this deep. That kind of image of a formula or request also started to fade. So, I don't know, about the time I was in college or so, or maybe slightly after, I wanted a more ancient form. So I was like, well, maybe I'll pray the Psalms. Like, uh, you know, in, in Judaism, uh, the Psalms are, are part of, of prayer life. And in monastic Christianity, uh, the Psalms are a very important part of the, the cycles of prayer. And I was like, well, that feels better than me just making up words. I'll just use really old words that aren't mine. And that worked for a little while, I'd say. And then I got interested in contemplative Christianity. And so um, I don't know how much you know about the monastic hours. So all kinds of different monastic traditions have hours of the day that are set for prayer. And they go all the way from um, daybreak to three in the morning, essentially. Not that I did that. I wasn't that righteous. But I started following those. It was like uh, St. Francis has an hours, and I started praying the hours of St. Francis, and that felt different than just sort of asking for requests or something like that, and it felt older in a way, and I found a version of, of someone took Thomas Merton's words and turned those into the hours, and that, that sort of worked. And then about that same time, I discovered contemplative, um, a form of contemplative prayer of just silence. And I was like, now this feels right. <laughs> no more words and just enough, enough speaking, and what about just 
letting go of all words. And that, that was a, an opening for me and, and something I still return to. And we would call that in other traditions meditation, you know, the absence of words and silence. And, and the more I poked around, the, real, the more I realized, okay, my early versions of prayer were just like a tiny sort of sliver of this broad conversation, not only within Christianity, but just around the world. I mean, um, there are sophisticated and nuanced and kind of beautiful and ancient forms of prayer that are available to us. And then, you know, also then I just didn't do it anymore. <laughs> like, just didn't even occur to me. And then sometimes I would like, even today, like, I might not pray for a while and then all of a sudden I'll feel like praying the Lord's Prayer. Now I have like less, I'm just less worried about doing it right or anything like that. It'll just occur to me. I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. Our Father in heaven. How's it go? Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Sometimes. <laughs> Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, that's a very old prayer. By the way, it's called the Lord's Prayer, but it's interesting because in the, in the Gospels, the disciples asked Jesus how they should pray. And Jesus says, well, I'll try this one. <laughs> And actually borrows the first line from something called avieno, um, that's the, the word in Hebrew, our Father. It's straight out of the, the prayers of the, of the Amidah in, in Judaism. He just borrows something, our Father who art in heaven. So he begins that way. And of course, they would have recognized that. Anyway, I, I told you that because it's more like the disciples' prayer than Lord's prayer, you know. So anyway, um, so I, I, I want to kind of be straightforward here in a second about how I now presently hold prayer. Not that you have to follow, you know, my lead or anything like that, um, but I do want to try to say something about it because one thing I think, if I'm very still and honest about prayer, there's something about developing or cultivating or finding a prayer life that to me is sacred. Like, if you ask someone how they pray, you're really in kind of tender territory. Even if they say, I don't pray, it's, it's, like, it's sensitive terrain because it's revealing something that's quite personal, really, and quite sensitive and quite honest and actually something very intimate. That's partly why I'm uncomfortable talking about my own history of prayer because it's kind of intimate. Um, and I don't know if you've read Anne Lamott's book. She has that book, um, Wow, Thanks, and Help. I don't know if that's the order, but it's something like that. She says you only need three prayers, wow, thanks, and help. And, and I feel something, I, you can feel the simplicity and also the intimacy of that kind of thing. Sometimes, yeah, help. You know, and she comes from a, a background of a lot of addiction. So, yeah, help. You need help from time to time. Or thanks, that's a better stance in the world. Or wow, we would connect that with wonder, something like that. So, um, I don't know, my point is that it's, there's something sacred about it, in my view, something intimate, something personal, something old, something ancient, um, and it's been a part of every kind of spirituality and religion that we know of. And so um, here's my favorite line from Thomas Merton. He says, what I wear is pants, what I do is live, and how I pray is breathe. You feel how simple that is in a way? But he's revealing something about, about prayer here, really, but also just about how he lives. But here now, as a, think of him. Imagine Thomas Merton. If you don't know who he is, he's, he was a monk. 
imagine a long white robe. He's a Cistercian. These are the French uh, order of Cistercian monks who take a vow of silence. They don't speak. So now listen to him. What I wear is pants. So he's kind of like winking a little bit too. Um, what I do is live and how I pray is breathe. And we also know from the, from the entire Eastern tradition that prayer slash meditation is connected to the breath. So he's also, say, he's also like crossing these, this east-west divide between you know, Western forms of prayer and Eastern forms of prayer. He's just saying, yeah, I, I pray, and that's called breathing. You know, and that's, you know, the word spirit, after all we're talking about spirituality, is breath. That's its, its, its origin. That's its root. It's the wind. It's breath. And, and so you're praying, right? And you're like, I don't pray. I was like, well, do you breathe? You know? Yeah, I, I no longer pray. You died? <laughs> do you feel how there's just like a blurring here, a blending of, of, uh, of some nuance? So here's where I'm going to be explicit. This is how I personally think about prayer. I wrote it out so I could try to be clear. I've come to think about prayer as primarily a posture we take in the world. That's how I think about it. It's a posture, like, or a stance, a, a way of standing or being, or, or you could say kneeling if you want to go old-fashioned, a way of being in the world, a certain stance, a certain posture. To pray is to take a posture, and in my view, and it almost doesn't matter what the words are or if there are no words. Like, meditation is a stance you take. I'm going to sit here and breathe and follow the breath and let go of images and thoughts and ideas and plans and annoyances and hang-ups and see if you have that's a, a way of standing in the world a stance you take so and I think something like that still matters it matters the stance that we take in the world and <clears throat> excuse me um, here's another way of putting it putting it um, and I as a form of a question how can I live humbly before I what I don't understand it's a stance in the world that's, that's how I think about prayer. How can I live humbly before what I don't understand? Or maybe I could say it another way. How can I live humbly before what I do understand, for that matter? That's more of a posture. It's a posture that requires a certain amount of humility, like uh, T.S. Eliot has that line, kneel where prayer has been valid. You know? I still don't know what he means. I wish he was around. I'd be like, what do you mean? Kneel where prayer has been valid. valid but I can hear in it, Posture, posture, a stance in the world. So that's primarily how I think about, about prayer. And to take a, that kind of stance in the world, posture, requires listening. And that's the sort of the, the um, direction I want to take the rest of the talk. Because most of the time when people think about prayer, they think about things that you say. And I would like to turn it the other way that has more to do with posture, in my opinion, with the question of how, how should we listen? How do we listen? How do we listen to the world? How do we listen to the natural world? How do we listen to our life? How do we listen to other people? How many of you know the feeling of talking with someone and not feeling heard? <laughs> yeah. And you know, and, and well, think about the other way, too. The power of talking to someone when you do feel heard, see, that's listening, and that's a posture in the world. It requires a certain amount of humility from the listener to really listen well enough to even hear what you're saying. And I'd like to suggest that's a hidden 
dimension of what I would call a prayer life, a way of standing in the world, a way of being in the world, a posture of listening. Am I making sense so far? Just sort of like, you know, turning over the soil here. Conversation requires listening, if I can just be direct. And no matter what your idea or no idea of God might be, I, I, I like to bring in a word like conversation. Is there a conversation? Is there something passing between? And I'm just saying it requires a certain amount of listening. In fact, part of what I'm going to do today is read, big surprise, like five poems. Um, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on them, but I just want you to listen to the words. This is a very famous poem. I've read it here before, in fact. This is The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. So let's just listen to what she has to say. Who made the world? Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is, she says. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So what a lovely poem. It's a poem about listening. It's a poem about attention. It's about attending to something and paying attention to the world, to this world, to this black bear, to this swan, to the kids next door making noise. <laughs> That's this world. That's the world we're in. We're not in another world. So it's a matter of attention. Of paying attention, she says, I don't know what a prayer is, but I do know how to pay attention. I know how to kneel down in the grass. I'd like to learn how to kneel down in the grass. And kneeling as a kind of posture, a kind of posture of listening to the world. So um, I kind of broke down what I want to try to say today into sort of three camps here, camps around listening, kinds of listening, you could say. Um, part one, I want to talk about listening to your life. And then part two, I want to talk about listening to the world. And then I want to talk about listening to other people or others. I don't even have to, it doesn't have to be about people, but listening to any other. Even a grasshopper with her enormous and complicated eyes and washing her face and moving her jaw back and forth instead of up and down. So that's listening to an other. Um, and then, of course, I'll throw in a few more poems and ideas here. So um, first thing I want to say is I want to suggest that a kind of prayer life is, is, or a kind of posture in, in, in your life is listening to your own life. And you might say, well, that's easy. It's my own life. That's what I do all the time. But actually, it's a little more difficult than that. Sometimes we just are not listening to our life and calling that living. We're ignoring the, the patterns and, and circumstances and um, gifts. Or like right now, you might be saying, 
I want to ignore the fact that kids are um, next door, you know. So it's like I, I want to shut something out. And I, I'm suggesting just to turn it slightly toward listening to your own life. And this is what I mean. I want to start with a story that comes from um, Greek mythology. So um, the story goes something like this. In the womb, imagine yourself in the womb. All right, there you are in the womb, hanging out. Everything is union, oneness, wholeness, goodness. You're fed. You're warm. This is the closest you will ever get to um, a, a sort of belonging, <laughs> a kind of deep belonging. All right, there you are in the womb. And an angel comes along and lights a, a, a match and, and, and a candle in the womb. Okay, and just for a moment, just for a moment, you see, you get a glimpse of your destiny, like, where, like your ultimate destiny, the thing that you're born into the world to inhabit and to be. There it is. It just lights up for a moment. Oh, my God, my life. This is all happening in the womb, okay? And then, and then, and then you're like, okay, it's time. I'm coming into the world. And then just as you enter the world, another angel comes along and blows out the candle and you forget, Okay? That's, a, that's the way the Greeks imagined birth, you know, mythopoetically. And so it tells you something funny about a word like destiny is that they're saying, yes, individual humans do have a kind of destiny, but we forget what it is. We don't exactly know what it is. We don't even know how to listen for it very well. We sort of lose our way, and we're not really sure, and, and, and we get confused, and we make wrong turns, and, and all of that becomes part of the path. And so it's, it's playing with that notion of, of your ultimate purpose, which requires a certain kind of listening to your life, is what I'm saying. And maybe I'll just say one other thing about fate and destiny. I'm not trying to turn you into Greeks. I have mentioned this idea before, but um, fate are the things in Greek mythology and Greek thought that you can't do anything about. Right? That's it, that, like your zip code that you were born into, your parents. You know, no one consulted you. Hey, would you, you know, who, who would you like to be born into? You know, what kind of family? You know, your skin color. Um, your la- the language or languages that you speak. You know, I came into the world in an English-speaking family. No one consulted me, you know. I, I prefer something else, you know. Th- that's fate. And what the Greeks say about fate is that it puts pressure on you. It's like a cauldron. It's like a pressure cooker. And the point of the, according to to Greek thought, the point of the pressure of fate is so that you'll want to discover your destiny. So it frustrates you. It's like, dang it, I I feel pressure. And so you start to wonder, well, what what does mind really do in the world? And that's that's a question of destiny. So now, why am I mentioning that here? Because when I think about... um, Spirituality for the 21st century and prayer is a kind of posture, a kind of listening. I'm suggesting listen to your life. Listen to the, the things that, that you would call fate. What are those pressures that you didn't choose? You weren't like, hey, next week I want this. Or the stuff that has just happened to you. How has that shaped you in some way? And also both bothered you and also inspired you to wonder, what am I really doing here? What is mine to do? Or what, you know, what is my way of being in the world? Those are questions of fate and destiny. So that's one way of, um, I'd like to suggest of listening to your life. Here's a, 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 an unusual question. So Jung, Jung used to ask, what is the myth of my life? 
He said, the number, this is in his memoirs, the number one question that I've been carrying since I was little is, what is the myth of my life? Now, you might not particularly resonate with that because you're like, well, I don't really, I'm not into myths or what does exactly he mean, but do you feel how he's saying something other than what are the circumstances of my life or what's my resume or, you know, at the end of my, you know, I was thinking something like the, re like the resume. Imagine if you put that on your tombstone, you know, <laughs> it'd be kind of funny. You're like, really? That's the sum total of your life, your resume? Like, you wrote a book? Or, or whatever, worked for such and such a place from, you know, 1998 to 2004, you know, I mean, that, that's, it's odd. Because we know that part of us knows that's not what life is really about. And, and, and Jung is dancing with that question. What is the myth? What is the deep structure of my life? What are the forces at work in my life that are mythic and poetic and, and deep that aren't just like in the realm of culture and roles and identities and things like that? Here's another question you can ask if you want to listen to your life. What are the patterns that keep showing up? What are the patterns that keep showing up? Like, why do I keep falling in love with the same kind of person? Or um, why do I keep running into the exact same kind of circumstance at work? Or why do people keep accusing me of fill in the blank? Or why, and on and on it goes. That's what, what that kind of, what that requires in terms of listening is what are the patterns? What are the patterns? What, how are, how is my own life revealing itself to me? I think is an important question in terms of listening to your life. So um, here's another one. Um, what do I not see? What do I not see? Now, that's a hard one because you can't say, well, I know what I don't see. Well, th then you've already seen it. So <laughs> what do you not see about your, about your own life? What are your blind spots? Until you're curious about that, I don't think you're listening to your life very deeply. Because if you say, I don't have any blind spots, that is a kind of blindness. Wouldn't you agree? Like, there's, there's just no way I, I have any blind spots. I just, I just see clearly every circumstance, every scenario, every conversation. I just happen to know the truth of what's really happening. And No, you don't want to go through the world that way. And again, the posture that I'm suggesting is, well, what if I listen to my own life? And what if I start to get curious about ways I might be wrong? Here's another question, and then I'll kind of move on to something else. What pains or wounds or questions am I carrying even from my own ancestors? So you might have your own pains and wounds and circumstances and even traumas that happen to you that you're carrying that is part of your own story. But then sometimes I wonder, am I also carrying things from, from my own ancestors? From what were their questions and ideas and problems and shortcomings. And how, what is that dynamic? See, sometimes I, I think about, why am I interested in the question of God? Like, why? I mean, I'd prefer something else, to be honest with you. Like, why can't I just be interested in, you know, sewing, you know, or whatever? Like, I don't even care. It's, it bothers me that I'm still bothered by the question of God. It won't leave me alone. And, but then I think about, well, how did I come to this? Well, let's see. My dad was an Irish minister. My grandfather, his dad, was an itinerant Irish minister who rode around on his motorcycle giving sermons and thinking and talking about God. And that's, that's as far back I know on that side. On my mom's side, my grandfather 
was also a minister who made a living um, preaching against alcohol, a teetotaler, here in the Michigan and Canada area until he was driven out and had to move to Colorado because they caught him drinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've got good genes, you know? I mean, like, seriously, seriously, how much of that is just what we might call DNA or even spiritual DNA, if there's such a thing. By the way, this is not such a crazy idea because um, I don't know if you're into epigenetics. Epigenetics is a whole field of study. I don't want to go into it in, too in depth, but I'll just give you the drive-through version, which is people used to think your DNA is just your DNA. That's it. But now what they're saying is there are certain factors or nicks or marks, that's actually the word that used, um, affects our DNA. So especially in the womb and in early childhood, um, circumstances happen to us that mark our DNA and then certain expressions of the DNA open up or close down. That's the field of epigenetics. So yes, you have your DNA, but it's a way of saying your environment does matter a big, it matters greatly. And it seems like these can be turned on and off, these marks, which is crazy. And, and the most advanced field of epigenetics suggests that some marks in DNA might be inherited, which is what people used to call, you know, inheriting the sins of their fathers. You know, that would be the biblical way of saying it. Or traumas that are passed on through generations. So I'm just, I'm combining a little bit of science and, and the question. So my question is, what kind of pains, wounds, questions am I carrying from my, my ancestors? That I just, I'm in, born into the world and for some reason I'm wrestling with these things. Okay. Here's the way Paula de Arce um, uh, summarizes this idea. She said, God comes to us disguised as our life. <laughs> so listen to your life is what I'm saying. Okay, part, part two, listening to the world. I was already playing with this one last week by suggesting, this is a phrase from Bill Plotkin I got from him, we are who we are in relation to everything else. We are who we are in relationship to everything else. We are essentially and fundamentally relational beings. You are a being in relation, in relational dynamic with everything else in your environment, your field, what you see, what you don't see, your consciousness, your unconscious world. You're a dynamic relational being. So we ought to be listening to the world in which we're related to. So listening to the world like a poem. I just have like clues in my notes about what poem, like as if I need to leave, my, leave myself hints. I should have just written the poem. Um, yeah, yeah, this is the poem I want. This poem is called Lost, right? Anybody ever been lost in the woods? Like really genuinely lost? Like, oh, it's, it's a lovely, beautiful, terrifying thing. Um, okay, here's David Wagner's advice if you ever get lost. Stand still. First thing he says, stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. 
and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. You must treat it as a powerful stranger. The here, you must treat it as a powerful stranger. And, and you must ask permission to know it and to be known. So if we are who we are in relationship to everything else, listen to this line. We must ask permission to know it and to be known. The forest breathes, or prays. The forest breathes. Listen, he says. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave, if you leave it, you may come back again saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. What of a tree or a bush? If what a tree or a bush does, if what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. You must let it find you. I, okay, so we are who, who we are in relationship to everything else, and I'm suggesting a form of listening is listening to the world. And how would you listen to the world where well, you'd have to stand still from time to time? You'd have to stand still. You'd have to let the conversation between you and the wild world come alive. It knows where you are. You might not know where you are. What part of you? Now I'm going to interpret it a little bit. Your ego has no idea where it is. But your body is in dynamic relational presence with everything that, that is. Where are you? You're here. You're nowhere else. You're not even lost. You're just in dynamic relationship with the wild world. And the trees know where you are. And you're, you can be in conversation. So I'm suggesting a kind of living conversation with the world is the kind of prayer life I'd like to cultivate. Um, I finally, I've been looking for a better word for climate change because I think this is the most boring word, boring phrase ever invented. Do you believe in climate change? It's just like climate change. I know you have to like fill in the blank of what you might mean by that. It's like saying almost nothing at all. Now, I'm a student of history, like ancient history and going way back. The climate changes. So it's like, it's not really asking much is what I'm saying. Do you believe in climate change? You know, you know how many ice ages they were in the last uh, 200,000 years? Quite a few, actually. So yeah, the climate changes. So I finally found the phrase. It just came to me this morning. I like the phrase now, earth degradation. Do you believe in earth degradation? <laughs> or, here's a better way of saying it, is there any evidence of earth degradation? And I'd say, yeah, there, there happens to be. And actually, I don't think many people would disagree with that. So earth degradation, that's what I'm saying. All right, so earth degradation, I'm suggesting, calls for a new stance in the world, a new posture in the world, a way of remaining related to the world. That's what we need. We need a relationship, a conscious relationship with the way things are, with reality, even if that reality is filled with earth degradation. We need to be in conversation with that. I don't know if you saw those, um, where was it in, in Ohio where the train derailment happened? Palestine. And I don't know if you saw those, um, those images of, of, uh, of just residents 
putting a stick in the creek and lifting it up and just having all that, those chemicals come to the surface of the water. So that's earth degradation, yeah. And stand there, stand still. Go stand there for a while and be in dynamic conversation with the earth. That's, that's what's needed. You need a more conscious posture. Let's look at the bulletin. I need one, though. Yeah, thanks. Here's partly what I mean. Here's a poem. Or a, um, uh, I guess this is more prose. This is from John O'Donohue. With a sense of hearing, we listen to creation. With a sense of hearing, we listen to creation. So you have to really listen here. One of the greatest thresholds in reality is the threshold between sound and silence. All good sounds have silence near, behind, and within them. The first sound that every human hears is the sound of the mother's heartbeat in the dark lake water of the womb. This is the reason for our ancient resonance with the drum as a musical instrument. The sound of the drum brings us consolation because it brings us back to that time when we were at one with the mother's heartbeat. That was a time of complete belonging. No separation yet occurred. We were completely in unity with another person. P.J. Curtis, the great Irish authority on rhythm and blues music, often says that the search for meaning is really the search for the lost chord. When the lost chord is discovered by humankind, the discord of the world will be healed and the symphony of the universe will come into complete harmony with itself. See, that's a vision, and that's a, that's a vision for a dynamic relationship, and the key to that dynamic relationship is a kind of listening, a listening to the world, listening to the symphony of the earth, listening to the symphony of the others of the earth, listening to the heartbeat of the earth. I'm sorry, this thing keeps pulling down on me. All right, part three, listening to others. How many are really good at listening to other people? Who wants to dare raise their hand? <laughs> um, how many feel like most people are not good at listening to people? <laughs> oh, that's uh, that other people, they suck. And like I said before, that feeling of being heard touches like a deep chord in us. When we're trying to get something out, we don't even know exactly what we're trying to get out, and we feel seen and heard, it's like the symphony is there. It's like, oh, there it is. And that posture of listening, which I'm calling a posture of prayer, I think um, helps pave the way. And so here's some challenges, like when I think about listening. Um, what if next time you were in conversation with someone, you tried to drop all stories or categories? It's really hard, actually. Like, in fact, oftentimes we're fishing for categories in which to frame this person. Like, there they are, and they're talking about something, and I'm listening. And then they throw in a phrase that's like, oh, I'll, I'll take one that, that came up this morning in pre-talk. I'm just so blessed. And be like, oh, now I know how to put that person is in the category over here, that, the kind of person that says, I'm so blessed, okay? <laughs> Regardless of what you think about that, see, do you see how like, the, then the filters come out? Where do I put this person? Or, or someone says, um, um, Climate change is, is, uh, is a hoax by the Chinese, okay? Oh, all right, there we go. Now I know, now I know how I'm going to listen to this person, which is I'm not going to listen at all, all right? 
So I'm just suggesting, um, next time you're in conversation, just try it. I'm just going to drop the stories. And I'm not going to let little phrases that people use be just the primary way of categorizing this person. Um, Jung has this great line. He, he has a letter that he, he's writing to, to therapists, to healers, and he says, uh, no person is a statistic. Every person is a profound mystery. So, like, all right, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe the words they, they're saying aren't really what's going on here. So, like, listening for the story behind the story and trying to drop our stories as much as possible. We need that kind of listening, which the only place that's happening is just in the political sphere, you know? Just people are just deeply dropping stories and saying, I just open my heart, I just want you to invite you in, I really want to listen. But we can do that, we can do that. We can't expect that of the people that we put in charge at least not right now. Um, here's another way of thinking about listening when you're speaking to the other. What about listening, here's a phrase I like, as an act of diminishment? Okay, An act of diminishment. So oftentimes, consciously or unconsciously, often consciously, we want our egos to be propped up. Like, oh, in this conversation, I'm going to get in the word, the phrase. You know, I, I'm really just listening for the window when I can say, when I can talk. Okay, oop, there it is. Hello, everyone. I've got something to say now. But what if we listen as an act of diminishment? Meaning, maybe the thing that needs to happen here is I need to become smaller, just for a moment. Just like, because how else will I listen to what's going on? So maybe something that's being said, I can let it work on me. I can experience a small ego diminishment. Maybe then I'll have something to say, or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just be silent. Who knows? Here's another um, process of, of listening to the other that I think might be important. Like, what about if we thought about listening as a process of, of maturation, of maturing? Like a lens through which we thought about how to grow up or how to mature. What if most people talked about, or what if you begin to think about, hey, I would like to mature, meaning I'd like to become a better listener. That means you might have a better marriage <laughs> or intimate partnership or relationship or friendship. But oftentimes, we, it, it's funny how other things sneak in. We sometimes think about maturity as the ability to be clearer about where I stand, you know, and to show up, you know. But maybe actually listening is a kind of secret sauce here around maturing. Okay, I have more to say here, but I want to get to two, two poems as an act of listening, as an act of ego diminishment. Here's one from Wendell Berry. This is a great one. I shouldn't set it up. It's just a poem. I have no idea. <laughs> I go among trees and sit still. That's the title of it. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirrings become quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them. My tasks lie in the places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What is afraid of me, little chickadees and squirrels and chipmunks, and what is afraid of me for a while um, comes and lives in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. It sings, and I hear its song. I'm listening. It sings, I hear its song. 
Then what I am afraid of comes, and I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. After days of labor, mute in my consternations, I hear my song at last, and I sing it. As we sing, the day turns, the trees move. Do you feel how it's like it turns toward a kind of harmony and symphony and song, a shared singing with the world? And how do you get there? You listen. That's what he's saying. Uh, you leave your things, unfinished things, on the desk, and you go out and you sit for a while. I want to end with a little phrase, a little um, passage from Thomas Merton. For the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. For some reason, Thomas Merton makes me laugh. For the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The silence of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. The more we persist in misunderstanding the phenomena of life, the more we analyze them out into strange finalities and complex purposes of our own, the more we involve ourselves in sadness, absurdity, and despair. I'll translate. The more we spend all of our time trying to figure everything out, the more we involve ourselves in sadness, absurdity, and despair. But it doesn't matter much, he says, because no despair of ours can alter the reality of things or stain the joy of the cosmic dance which is always there. Indeed, we are in the midst of it. We are in the midst of a cosmic dance, he's saying, a kind of symphony, a kind of, um, what's the Buddhist phrase? Uh, Dependent co-arising in which our song and the song of the world is resonating and harmonizing. He says, we are in the midst of it and it is in the midst of us for it beats in our very blood whether we want it to or not. Yet the fact remains that we are invited to forget ourselves on purpose. I'd like this line, forget ourselves on purpose. This is partly what I mean by prayer as a posture in the world. Like a posture of quiet, of listening, of diminishment. Let's forget, my, forget myself for a moment and just open my ear to the cosmic dance of reality is what he's saying. The fact remains that we are invited to forget ourselves on purpose, to cast our awful solemnity to the winds and join the general dance. That's all I got for you today.